following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now, let's dive back into Mosaic. Hopefully, you're up to speed tracking with the series and where we're going and what we're doing. This morning, we're in Genesis chapter 44. Uh, we've got these readings of Scripture on screen. I know uh, it's not always because the people reading on screen are not always reading the entire chapter. Okay, so you do have to jump a little bit. So just do your best with the Bible open in front of you uh, or on your device and just follow. Sometimes they might jump a paragraph or two, but you just jump and see if you can track as they're going. But it is really helpful to have your Bible open as we go through this. Okay, so Genesis 44, and let's watch the screen. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill them in sacks with as much food as they can carry. And put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. And put Micah, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As the morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes, and then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, Only the man who was found to have the cup will be my slave. The rest of you will go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my lord. Let me speak a word to my lord. My lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, so I may see him for myself. Our father said, Go back and buy a little more food. But we said, We cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us can we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said he has surely been torn into pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in misery. So now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring down the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my lord's slave in the place of the boy, and let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. 
Now, let's just uh, <clears throat> try and get our bearings with the story for a couple of minutes here, because we are in the thick of the jungle with the story, and uh, helpful just to get a sense of where we're up to. <clears throat> so, at this point in the story, last week, Brad took you through a couple of very dense chapters. Uh, chapter 42, 43, there's a lot that was happening there, and you had those two visits of Joseph's brothers to see him in Egypt. So, at this point, we've got Joseph as the prime minister, essentially, of Egypt, and there is a massive famine happening throughout the Middle East that is ravaging the food supply. And Joseph is in charge of distributing what there is in Egypt that they've been storing up, not only to the Egyptians, but also to people from other countries that are coming to get grain. And so you've had these two trips that his brothers have made to Egypt to buy grain. And all the ups and downs that went along with those travels, that, that first trip where they were treated quite harshly by Joseph, accusing them of being spies and imprisoning Simeon. And then that, that second trip uh, where they brought Benjamin down with them and where they were treated so warmly by Joseph and shown such incredible hospitality. And this, this amazing dinner was laid on for them there. And they just received this unusually kind treatment from this prime minister who's got a sort of familiar look in his eye but they can't quite place him. They don't know that this is their brother. And so they're sort of puzzled by all this, but at the end of that journey, they've got their grain that they need. They've loaded up their donkeys and they're heading away. They say goodbye to this prime minister for the final time, they think, and they're now heading away from Egypt and heading home back to their father, back to Canaan. All 11 of them are there. Simeon's there. They've got Benjamin with them. It seems good. They're heading out of town. They're heading for home. But Joseph has got one more little trick up his sleeve, doesn't he? He's been a cunning guy through this series. And he has the greatest test of all that he's now preparing for his brothers. As they prepare to leave, he says to his steward, now take my silver cup, this precious royal artifact, and put it in Benjamin's sack. In the mouth of Benjamin, the youngest brother, put it in his sack. And so he does. The brothers leave. They only get a little way out of Egypt. And Joseph sends his steward after the brothers. And the steward catches up with them and starts accusing them of taking the silver cup. And of course, the brothers disavow any knowledge of this, and, and they, they know they haven't actually stolen anything. So they're like, well, we don't know what you're talking about. And if, 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 this, this, if this is true, then let that person die, and we'll all be your slaves because they all know they're innocent, right? And so the sacks are searched one after another. Try, try, to, try to feel what that was like. And you get to that point. Benjamin's sack is opened, and the cup is found. And just imagine what that was like for Benjamin what that moment was like. Just imagine what that moment was like for the brothers, yeah, for the other, the other 10 there, looking on, just the despair they would feel. They were just about home and host, just about out of Egypt. And now it turns out that baby brother Benjamin's been helping himself to the silverware on the way out the door. They would just not have been able to believe what they were seeing. And, of course, what this means now is that Benjamin is going to be carted back to Egypt as a slave. They, they, they can't get him back to his father as they desperately needed to. He's now in big trouble, essentially gets arrested, and he's going to be taken back. Now, here's the test. Here's the moment for these brothers. And Joseph has just brilliantly constructed this test. What Joseph is doing here, he's basically putting his brothers in the same situation they were in with Joseph, 
20 years earlier. All right, Brad talked you through a bit of this last week with several of the tests were like this. But here, you think about this. So now there's a moment where these brothers have got to decide what they're going to do with Benjamin. Option A, they just leave him for dead. Because the other 10 could have taken off home. They were free. They hadn't stolen anything. It was just Benjamin. They could have cut and run at this point. And that's essentially what they did to Joseph. Let him just go as a slave to Egypt 20 years earlier. But there's an option B. And this is the option that you see shining through in this story. Just have a look at verse 13. At this, they tore their clothes, a sign of grief. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Notice the word all. Not just Benjamin. Not just one or two brothers that stuck with them. They all loaded up their donkeys and they all headed back to Egypt. These brothers decide they are not going to treat Benjamin the same way they treated Joseph 20 years earlier. Can you hear that? This is a fundamentally different decision. They are sticking with Benjamin. They're staying with their brother. They're going to stay by his side and go back and face whatever the consequences are in Egypt. So they all head back, back to Egypt, back to Joseph. They didn't know it was Joseph, but back to the prime minister, back to his house. And here they are now before Joseph. And Joseph, you know, he, he knows how to play the game and he sort of has this tirade at them, this kind of pretend rant at how dare they take this silver cup and don't you know my powers and I've got the power of divination and all of these things, you know, he's going on and on, really playing it up. And then uh, the brothers, you know, basically surrender themselves again as slaves. And Joseph said, no, it's only going to be the one who was found with the cup, who I'm going to make a slave. He'll be my slave. The rest of you are free to go to your father. The rest of you are free. You go back to your father. That's fine. And then at this moment, A strange thing happens. Judah steps forward. Now, you're not expecting this. He's not the oldest. There was no need or reason for him to come to prominence here. But Judah steps out of the shadows. And he says, Joseph, can I have a word with you for a minute? And Judah proceeds to give this speech. Now, the speech that he gives, if you look at the verses here, it runs all the way from verse 18 all the way down to verse 34. The speech of Judah is the longest speech in the book of Genesis. So that in itself should make you sit up and pay attention, right? There's something going on here. This is a significant speech that Judah gives. And and as you just skim it there, you just see the heart in the speech. Like he is pleading for the life of his brother. He is desperate for Benjamin's life. He's saying, you cannot keep Benjamin here. And a lot of that speech is driven by his love for his dad, Can you hear that in his speech? He's saying, I cannot go back to my father without this boy. I cannot. My dad barely even let him come on this trip to begin with. He was dead against it. And then finally, he he let Judah take Benjamin because Judah vowed that he'd look after him. And now you've got the prospect of Benjamin spending the rest of his life as a slave and Judah just can't bear it. He said, don't make me return to my father with this news that now his youngest son is dead. He's already had this other son, this other son, who's been torn to pieces apparently. Now what, he's going to lose Benjamin as well. Judah's saying that, that is just going to destroy my father. That is going to bring his gray head down to the grave 
is how he says it. This is a passionate speech. It's a heartfelt speech. It's a beautiful speech. And then you get right to the end of this speech and look at what he says at the end here. Verse 33, now please let your servant, that's him. He says, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. What's he doing? He's saying, take me. You know, take me, I will be the slave. Put me in the prison, make me your servant, but let Benjamin go. Let him go back with his brothers. He doesn't deserve this. Judah is offering himself as a slave in place of Benjamin. Now, if you have been reading the story up to this point, if you've been tracking with the series, you've been reading the chapters, you get to the end of this speech, and your first question should be, is this Judah? Like, hang on, is uh, Judah? Is it that guy? Because if you rewind the story a little bit, you go back to the beginning of the Joseph story, back in chapter 37, what was Judah doing? He was the guy who's saying, oh, there's some slave traders coming along the road. Why don't we sell Joseph to them? He was the guy who advocated selling Benjamin off to some human traffickers. He had no problem doing that, no problem selling his youngest brother off back then. And so clearly he had no problem going back to his dad and telling him that Joseph was essentially dead. He didn't seem to have any problem with that back then either. He didn't care about his brother, didn't care about his father. That's who Judah was. And in fact, Judah's background is even worse than that. Now, there is a horrible little chapter in this story we haven't touched on yet. Chapter 38. You can read that in your own time. This is like the R18 chapter of the Bible. So those, those pages are sealed together in your Bible. It's pretty... Some of you are actually looking, aren't you? Really sealed. <laughs> They're not really sealed. But it is, it is an awful story. And Judah essentially forces his sister-in-law into prostitution and then proceeds to sleep with her. It uses her services as a prostitute. It's a, just a sordid, horrible story. And Judah emerges from this as a complete creep. Like the guy is just horrendous. So he's reckless. He's selfish. He's completely hedonistic and immoral. He, he's got no moral compass at all, this guy, earlier in the story. And now suddenly, in chapter 44, Judah steps forth as this amazing brother and this amazing son, begging for the life of his brother, filled with compassion towards his dad, offering himself as a slave in place of Benjamin. It's extraordinary what's happened here. And as you step back from this, you can, you can really only deduce that there has been some sort of incredible transformation that must have happened to Judah. And we haven't really seen it. Like This is the, it's the genius of the storytelling here. Whoever wrote Genesis, maybe Moses, the way that he writes the story, like we've been tracking with Joseph's story. And so we've been following that. And Joseph, of course, is the main character. And then all of a sudden you get to chapter 44 and you're like, hang on a minute. There's another story that's been going on the whole time. And I didn't see it. There's another story clearly that has been happening here. And it's the story of Joseph's elder brother, Judah. And this transformation that's gone on largely behind the scenes, but then suddenly he steps onto the stage as a transformed individual. There has been an amazing change in Judah's life. It's nothing less than a miracle. Now, I know it, it's tempting at this point to start applying this directly to our lives, and we start thinking, okay, so Judah is an example for me. How do I follow Judah? How do I become a better 
family member, a better person, more loving in relationships and these kind of things. And yes, 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 that is where we're heading. Yes, that's where we're going. But I want to suggest there's a really important part of the story we need to put in place before we get to that. Before we just rush off and make Judah a moral example for our lives, there's a piece of the puzzle that gives us the depth in terms of how we need to read this story and understand this story in the context of the whole biblical picture. Notice that Judah is the first person in the Bible to willingly offer his life for someone else. Isn't that interesting? Is that ringing any bells with anybody? You know, he's the first person. This doesn't happen much in the Bible, does it? But he, he offers his, essentially what he is doing is offering his life for his younger brother. Not even Abraham did that. Abraham offered his son, but Judah's offering his own life, his, the, the rest of his life. Now, who else in the Bible came along and offered his life for the sake of others? Isn't it interesting that Judah becomes the head of a tribe, the tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Judah is exactly the tribe from which Jesus of Nazareth comes. Like in the Bible, Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. He has, that's his ancestry, the tribe of Judah. And you can draw this beautiful connection between Judah and Jesus. You don't want to first go from Judah to you. First go from Judah to Jesus and look at what he shows you about Jesus. Like in a sense, we are all like Benjamin. Like we're all facing a lifetime of slavery. Right? Slavery to sin, slavery to selfishness, slavery ultimately to the evil one. That's our lives. That's our lot in life. And then along comes the Lion of Judah. Along comes Jesus, our elder brother. And just at the precise moment we need him, he steps forward. And he advocates on our behalf. And he says, take me. And I will lay down my life. And he does it willingly. He says, I lay down my life of my own accord. No one has the authority to take it from me. I lay it down and I will take it up again. He gives himself voluntarily for us, for our sins, to free us from that prison, get us out of slavery, bring us into the freedom of God's forgiveness, the freedom of being children of God, sons and daughters of God, experiencing peace with God and life in God's kingdom. That's what Jesus has done for us. So I want you to see, first and foremost, that the story of Judah points us to Jesus. It points us to the gospel. It points us to the good news, right? That's amazing. All the way back here in the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, you've got this foreshadowing of what is coming down the track. Like the biblical story is only just getting started. We haven't even got to Moses. We haven't even got to the Exodus. But already you're getting this pointing all the way forward to Jesus, all the way forward to the good news that's coming. Isn't the Bible awesome? The way that it does this, it's one big story. And so Judah, when he's giving this speech, you could think of him in a, in a way, it's like he's preaching the gospel. It's in a way, you know, it's like he's, he's given us a taste of the good news that's coming through Jesus, all the way back here. Now, that's the piece that we, we need to get that in place before we do anything else. Because that's the heart of the story. Now, once that piece is in place, then, yes, we can talk about Judah as an example of our transformation. And that's what we're going to do. But the order is so important. Can you see that? Because if all we do in this story, is we just look at Judah as this man who's had a changed life, and we go, oh, I need to be like that. And we race on out of here, and we try to do more selfless deeds, 
and we try to be better people and we try to be better Christians and we just try to improve ourselves morally, you know what that's called? Self-help. That's what that is. That's just us trying to improve ourselves and be better people. And our world's full of that. Right? Our culture's full of that. There's plenty of self-help on Google if you want to find it. If all you want to do is just general moral improvement and kind of the self-determined betterment of your life, that's, that's all over the map. You, know? you can find that anywhere. I don't think our world needs a lot more self-help. I think our world needs more sanctification. Now, that's a different thing. What is sanctification? Well, that starts at the cross. That begins as we recognize, I am anchored in the grace of Jesus. And I'm, I'm secure in that. And I know I'm loved. And I know I'm accepted, aside from anything I may do or not do. And then out of that place, out of that space, then we hear God's call to transformation. And there is a call to transformation. I'm not ignoring that at all. That's there. I just want you to see that it comes out of grace and it's a work of grace. And God says, now that I've saved you and now that I've revealed my grace in your life, now I do want to take you on a journey. I do want to take you now on Judah's journey. I want to take you on that journey from selflessness selfishness to selflessness. I, I want to work in your life, but it's not going to be you doing it by your own self-effort. It's not going to be you getting there by your own self-determination. It's going to be my spirit in your life. It's going to be my word. It's going to be my people around you, and it's going to be my power within you. It'll be me. You've got to cooperate with that. It's still going to take your effort. I don't think we, can, we can't escape that. The Bible calls us to make every effort to be holy. We can't avoid that, but we acknowledge this is a work of God's grace in our life. That's the difference between self-help and sanctification. Self-help is you going out there and trying to morally improve yourself. Sanctification is you being anchored in the grace of God and out of that, submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life as God makes you in practice what you are in your identity in Christ. That's the journey. And God wants to take every one of us on that journey, that journey of transformation, that journey of sanctification. And as I'm talking, I want you to just start thinking about your journey. I want you to start thinking about your own journey of transformation in your Christian life. Those of you that belong to Jesus, what's that journey been like for you? Think about how far you've come. Think about maybe what a next step looks like for you. As you're thinking about that, let me play you a video of a story. A story of a guy named Phil. He's here today, actually. And Phil's connected to a church up on the coast, the Vine Community Church. And it's just a story of Phil's life and the transformation that God's working in his life. This is Phil's story, obviously, not your story. But sometimes hearing other people's story can get us thinking about our own. So let's watch the screen and watch Phil's story. I'm originally from the UK. I moved out to New Zealand about a year and a half ago. Um, I guess my kind of backstory is more around that um, I never was brought up in any kind of religious way. Um, I never went to church. Uh, my mum never kind of pushed any religion on us. Um, my dad left when I was about 11. And I think what happened at that time is my mum was very much just trying to do the best she could. I th kind of think about back at that time, I think the thing that I miss the most, which is kind of relevant to today, is I never really had a father figure at any point. Um, and that ended up driving a lot of my actions around people-pleasing and certainly a lot of my actions around trying to succeed. Um, and it becomes very relevant to today because what I lacked in, in an earthly father, that's the thing that the vine has helped me to bring together um, as a spiritual father. If I fast forward to about 
when I was 25. So um, I met Jen, who's my, um, Jenny, who's my wife. Um, and we both were missing something in our lives. We both had problems spiritually um, with chaos and I think, um, I don't know, a spiritual disease, I would call it more than anything. So we found Gulf Harbor as an area to live. And we said, well, why don't we just join the church? And I was all, yeah, you know what, maybe that'll be a good way to meet new people. Um, and it might be, you know, it might be interesting. I would had a really kind of weird view of the church. It was very much minister talking from on high. You just shut up and listen and, you know, you get preached at. I think for me personally, church was this great thing because everyone was singing and it wasn't anything. I'd seen it in kind of movies. I'd seen it in like reading of, you know, people singing church. And I was always like, oh, that would just be awesome because I'm a music musician. But um I think it was like the first service and people started singing and I was just, I was all in. I was like, oh, this is great. Even if I just do this once a week, just the singing and the praising. I couldn't let it go. I couldn't stop coming. I think when it resonated in my soul that Jesus died, that somebody gave his life so we could have the relationship with God. I think at that point it all changed for me. Um, and what I found was um, I felt absolutely compelled to serve. It's the thing I was chasing my entire life, uh, and it's the thing that I continue to chase. So I'm extremely grateful for finding the vine. Uh, well, I'm extremely grateful for finding the vine because the vine for me was the platform to the Lord. It, it helped me enough to be able to make the transition out of filling the hole with money and power and things. It was about filling the hole with the Lord and with God and with the Word. I think for me, every day is becoming a blessing. I see it more and more as that kind of love for all things permeates. Um, so yeah, ultimately, the Lord has, has kind of ticked that box for me, um, and that's what now dry, and that's what ultimately will help me lead the rest of my life. And through, hopefully, my acts, my faith will be known. Not through the words that I say, that people will be able to look at my life and say that um, he's full of faith. And maybe some people would even look at it and say, so, so what's that about? And I can try and do the ultimate kind of task for me, which is to go on and make further disciples. My role on this earth will be to let my faith be demonstrated through my actions and to testify for the Lord. And even if one person turns their heart towards the Lord from it, then for me, that's a life well lived. Yeah, awesome, man. Eh? So that's... It fills story, a story transformation, and you hear the way that his life's been transformed by the grace of God. And then those steps that he, he's taking as God grows him in his life. And, and, and Phil, Phil wouldn't tell you this, but he's been taking some awesome steps of faith. And God's worked powerfully in his life in a short space of time, really bring about growth. Now, that's, that's his story, but think about yours. What, what does your journey look like? What does that journey of transformation look like? Because all of our stories are going to be different. And that there's going to be so many different changing and shifting dynamics. But at the heart of what God is wanting to do in our lives as Christians is transformation. That's the word I want you to hold on to, transformation. Let me read you a place where this crops up in the New Testament. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 3.18 and says, And we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, that word transformed, that's the Greek word metamorphou. It's the word from which we get metamorphosis. 
And, and we use that to talk about things that change their state, experience radical transformation. It's the word we use of the process a caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly. You know, think about that process for a minute. Amazing transformation in nature. And we're so familiar with it, we don't often think about the incredible miracle that that is, this little fat little caterpillar that goes into its chrysalis for a few weeks and then emerges as this incredible, beautiful butterfly. And you just think, you know, God has created these elements of nature for our benefit so that we can learn from these things. And that, that same word... It comes from the word Paul's using here, metamorphosis. He's saying that kind of transformation is the transformation that God is wanting to work in your life. That's the transformation he worked in Judah's life, right? Judah was that caterpillar. You know, he was just a selfish, reckless, immoral person. And God has worked him through this chrysalis of transformation and brings him out into this beautiful butterfly that you see in the story. Now, he's not perfect now. Right? It's not like Judah's suddenly perfected. He makes plenty of mistakes from this point on. He's still got that brokenness in his own life. But he's experienced radical transformation. That's the kind of journey God wants to take you on. So what God is saying through his word to us is, wherever you are in this process, I want to take you further. I want to bring about transformation in your life. The goal of that transformation, you can hear it in that verse, is that we would be transformed into his image. Now, who's the image Paul's talking about? It's the image of Jesus. So that's the goal that we have before us, is the person of Jesus. Jesus is not only the means of our salvation, he's the model of our sanctification. So he's the example to us of what a transformed life looks like. This is what God's wanting to do in your life, is to change your life so that your life looks a little bit more like the life of Jesus. So that the inclinations of your heart are a little bit more like the inclinations of Jesus' heart. So that the way you react in situations and respond to other people is a little bit more like the way Jesus reacted and responded to people. The way you treat people who are unlike you is a little bit similar to the way Jesus treated people who are unlike him. Uh, the, the kind of person you are when nobody's watching, that that would be a little bit more like the kind of person Jesus was when nobody else was watching. The kind of relationship that you have with your heavenly father would gradually resemble a little bit more of the relationship Jesus had with his heavenly father. Can you see? This is, the, this is the journey of transformation that we look at the life of Jesus and that is the character that God is wanting to change us into. Now, that is a huge journey. That is a massive process of transformation. But here's the thing. It comes down to a whole lot of really little steps. Really, really small little steps. And this was true for Judah, right? You think about his life. He had decisions to make. Like this was God's work in his life from beginning to end, but the story is very clear. He had decisions to make along the way. Decisions in relation to his father, decisions in relation to Benjamin. He had to make his choices. And in the same way, God works through the choices in our lives on a daily basis to bring about that transformation. It's not something that just happens through the big moments. It's not just dramatic things in our life that bring that transformation. It's a whole lot of tiny little decisions that you make through the course of every single day that God uses to work that transformation out in your life. And I want you to think of it this way. To, to draw from the story of Judah a bit, you could say that we face decisions every day 
as to whether we are going to be a life taker or a life giver. Now, just think about that in relation to Judah's story. Literally, that's the transformation he went through, right? From, from being a life taker, willing to take Joseph's life, to being a life giver, willing to give his own life. Now, you don't face that decision quite so literally, but you still face it. Every day, we're facing that decision. To be a life taker, that's basically just to use other people, to mistreat other people, put yourself ahead of other people, suck the life out of the people around you. To be a life giver is to be a blessing, to be an encouragement, to lift up other people around you. We're facing that choice in a multitude of ways. You're going to face it many, many times before you go to bed tonight. That's the decision. So think about your life. Think about school. Think about uni. How are you facing that decision to be a life taker or a life giver? Are you going to put yourself ahead of others? Are you going to just take what you need from other people? Are you going to have a bit of a laugh about someone else behind their back because it makes you look good in front of your mates? That's, that's, being, that's a taker. That's just being a life taker. Or are you going to make conscious decisions to be a life giver, to be encouraging to people around you, to look out for people on the periphery, on the margins, maybe who are being a little bit ignored by other people, and do what you can to love them and move towards them with kindness. That's being a life giver. Think about your work situation. Are you just a taker? Are you just a bit of a Judah in his early days at work, just treating people as commodities, personnel, resources, customers, clients, patients, however you want to think of them, just units. That's, that's a taker. Are you willing to turn around and start being a life giver in, in your workspace? Seeing people as people, seeing people as human beings, seeing people as people with families and stories and backgrounds and joy and pain and hurts and struggles and hopes and dreams. That's being a giver and doing what you can do to lift them up along the way. Think about this with the people you live with. Maybe this is the hardest part of all. Are you going to be a taker or a giver? You're going to be Judah in the early days or Judah in the latter days at home? The people you live with, who you're flatting with, your family. Is it just about your schedules and your moods and your time and what you feel like doing or what you don't feel like doing at any given moment? Is that what basically runs your house? Or are you willing to be a bit more of a life giver, to be a bit more flexible, be a bit more gracious? Be a bit more helpful, be a bit more encouraging, speaking some life-giving words and changing the atmosphere of your house. You can do that with life-giving words. Are you willing? Now, any one of those decisions that you make in any given day feels like nothing, right? Some little decision to say or not say something to someone, that just feels like that's nothing. But you add that up over the days and the years, and that's your character. That's the character that you're going to receive. And as you go, the work of the Holy Spirit is transforming and guiding and leading you. And even though you can't see that growth, you can't measure it in weeks, months, sometimes even years is hard. Over the course of your lifetime, gradually you see I'm being changed. I'm being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, little bit by little bit. Now, I know there's so many times that you're going to drift back to being a life taker. So many times you're going to go back to Judah in the old days because that's, we have that in us. Right, that's, that's selfishness, and that streak still runs through every single human heart. That's who we are. As long as we're in this world, that's who we are. Sometimes it's going to feel like one step forward and five steps backwards. But that's why I wanted to hammer so strongly this morning the way that Judah's story points us to Jesus and not just to you. So that in those times when you get it wrong, and there will be many, that you're not tempted 
to be discouraged, deflated, defeated, and disillusioned. But you can say, I know I am still totally secure in the grace of God. I can never fall beyond the reaches of his grace. I'm loved, I'm accepted, and I'm still held in the arms of my Father. And now he just gives me grace upon grace, sets me back on my feet, and said, let's take a step again, and let's take another step again, and let's just take a baby step and gradually move forward. That's who God is. He's so kind to you, isn't he? He's so patient with us when we just completely get it wrong time after time after time, and yet he still calls us to transformation. He loves you just as you are, but he won't leave you there. He'll never leave you there. And as you fail one test, he'll come back around in some other set of circumstances and bring it along your path again and say, let's have another go. You and me together. Let's have another shot at this. He is your gracious, loving God, but he is totally committed to your transformation. So I want you to think about those spheres of your life and whether you're willing to make more decisions into that life-giving space and moving further and further away from that life-taking space. And so as we finish this morning, I want to just open up a couple of minutes for us just to talk to the Lord about this and just ask Him to place on our hearts a desire for transformation because I'm so aware that my words can't do it. I can say all these things. I can teach you the story of Joseph. I can't bring about a single ounce of transformation in any of your lives. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So I'm more aware than usual this morning of my total dependence on the Holy Spirit to do His work and to seal on your heart a desire for transformation. And that's what I'm praying for you, is that you would have what Jesus called a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. I can't give it to you, but you can ask the Holy Spirit to give it to you. And my sense is maybe, because this happens to a lot of Christians, maybe you you can look at your life and you can see seasons of growth and transformation. Often it happens earlier in our Christian life. We're full of fire. We love the Lord. And we're growing, growing, growing. And then so much of the time we plateau. And maybe that's you. And you just look back over the last five years and you realize, I've gone nowhere. It's just, my growth is just totally flattened out. It's not growth at all. You're just stagnating in your Christian life. I suspect there's a lot of you in that space where you feel like in terms of your walk with God, you're just treading water. And I want to invite you, as Jesus invites you this morning, to open up your heart to him and ask him to give you a new desire to be transformed. That's where it starts. Not just with rushing out of here and going, I'm going to try and behave better, but asking God to change the deep desires and inclinations of your heart so at the deepest level you begin to be renewed in a new way. And God returns to you your first love and fans into flame again that fire that's just dwindled over however many years. Ask God to return that to you this morning, to to fan that flame, to give you back your first love, to restore in you a hunger to grow. Do you want to grow? A desire, a thirsting after Jesus, like the deer pants for the water, as Psalm says. Do you have that? And if you don't, that's okay, but ask God. Say, Father, please give me this. I want to grow. I want to at least desire more the things of you and less the things that are just distracting me and tangling me up in all sorts of other concerns and worries. Just open up your heart to God and speak to him about that. Ask him to change you deeply, inwardly, renew you, and show you what that next step is on your journey of faith. And to guide us through this time, I want to read to you a prayer. It's an old prayer. I hope that's okay. Sometimes we feel like the only prayers worth praying are ones we come up with on the spot. But this is an old prayer. And it's got some old language in it. 
but it's a prayer that's been crafted over and struggled over and wrestled through as this person found the words to say to God that express the cry of their heart. And maybe these are words that you can use this morning. Lift up your heart to God and say, God, I want to grow. I want more of you. Less of me, more of you, God. That's the, if that's the heart you have or want to have, I invite you to use these words to express what you want to say to God. So let's just open up that space and pray together. Lord Jesus, give me a deeper repentance, a horror of sin, a dread of its approach. Help me chastely to flee it and jealously to resolve that my heart shall be yours alone. Give me a deeper trust that I might lose myself to find myself in you the ground of my rest, the spring of my being. Give me a deeper knowledge of yourself as Savior, Master, Lord, and King. Give me deeper power in private prayer, more sweetness in your word, more steadfast grip on its truth. Give me deeper holiness in speech, thought, action, and let me not seek moral virtue apart from you. I have no master but you, no law but your will, no delight but yourself, no wealth but that you give, no good but that you bless, no peace but that you bestow. I am nothing but that which you make me. I have nothing but that which I receive from you. I can be nothing but that grace adorns me. Quarry me deep, dear Lord. And then fill me to overflowing with living water. God, I just sense in the room this morning, that's the cry of our heart is just to be filled by your Spirit and just to say, Jesus, you must increase, I must decrease. You must be more, I must be less. Jesus, give us those hearts that hunger for you and thirst after you. And show us, God, how we can walk this out practically in our lives, not just now in this moment, but at home and at work and at school and at uni and in all those other places we're going to be going back into this week, Lord, you know that's when it gets hard and that's when we so quickly just go back to being that old person, that old caterpillar. Oh, Jesus, by your grace, just lead us forward and remind us that through all the forwards and backwards steps, we are loved and we are accepted and we are secure in you. Thank you for your grace. Come and renew us and transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit 
www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.